Stella. Sunny Stella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. We're answering a big chunk of reader mail. We have a very fine fellow, Jay Halley, from our Fringeworthy Yahoo News Group, has posted a lot of questions after listening to podcast one, two, and three. And he wants to know a lot about the Fringe Pass. And we're going to answer those questions for him right now. So, John, I'm going to let you drive this because you took most of the questions and compiled them, and so I'm going to let you take off on this. Jay's first question is about horses on the fringe paths. He thought that they would be more reliable than machines, and for the most part, I would agree. Trouble is, a horse is a big animal. It actually has a, so it has a higher food intake. Therefore, you've got to haul food along with you as you go out there because you don't know when and where you'll end up at. You may have some place where there's no good fodder. You know, if you end up in a desert, uh, so you gotta haul all your food with you to feed the horse. So it means you need something that's high, high energy, you know, maybe alfalfa pellets, like that. But still, you gotta haul enough food and water for your horse. So horses may sound good, but you, then you realize you're in a place that's worse than any desert it could be. It's about 50 miles to the next platform. Well, we have to split this question into two parts. One is to say. Are horses good for travel along the fringe paths? And the second question is, are horses good for traveling on worlds when we're exploring them? Horses on the fringe paths have have the problem that the fringe paths are not friendly. There's no water. There's no fodder. There's nothing for them to eat. Unless you want to put diapers on your horses, they're going to be also kind of messy on your platform, too, on, on, on the pathways. It's just a matter of, I hate to say machines are better. But if you're on a world, horses may become indispensable. On a world, a horse lets you travel through a lot of terrains you can't send a vehicle through. Horses are a very good all-terrain vehicle. And so are camels, just depending on where you are. On a world, if you can find horses or some sort of beast of burden, camel or its American equivalent of a, a, super, or a super llama <laughs> as a beast of burden or something like that, you may want to use those, especially if there's no technology in that world and you're trying to keep your trying to lay low in that world. Uh, whether it's technology, yeah, people look at your car and think it's some sort of weird, weirdo, you know, weirdo car from some other country. But on a world where there's no cars, no vehicles, yeah, you're walking it or you're riding, a, riding an animal. It's not unreasonable to expect 25 miles a gallon from a vehicle. So traveling at 50 miles is two gallons of gas. You could have a modified vehicle, carry a, a tank, of 100 gallons even, you know, if you're talking about like a truck or something like that. But a horse, you just, you can't get around it. You can't get around the fact that that horse is going to need to eat and is going to need to drink. And there's no way you can carry enough stuff for him for any extended period of time. And, 
you get to a node, say a, a prime, where it's a desert world, like a completely desert world. Well, now you got to go another 50 miles, or you got to go back 50 miles. Either way you look at it, you know that's 100 miles your horse has to go with what he can carry, and it's just not a reliable. I just don't think it's reliable enough to use. Not to mention, I don't know what that flat surface is going to be like on his feet that whole time. So I, I think a horse is just a bad idea. Well, my opinion is that horses can really be a wonderful thing. Uh, however, they have a lot of problems, or I should say challenges about them, that the player has to really understand before they go in. First of all, he says, in the time in which horses were widely used, everybody knew how to take care of horses. Horses have very specialized digestive systems. They require a lot of work. Uh, they're not like a human being where you can chop, you know, kick back a couple of candy bars and a, and a granola bar and you're good to go. Horses require you know, blends of feed. They require uh, a, a good use of a veterinarian. I mean, this is the sort of thing that was handed down generationally, and everybody who had horses knew how to do these things. But modern-day people don't really know how to take care of horses unless they're in the specialized horse trade. So for your average person off the fringe, uh, who, who are coming to the fringe pass from a first world country or perhaps in a country where they don't have horses, they're going to be totally clueless how to take care of a horse. Uh, secondly, a horse is not an automaton. A horse is a willful creature who if you don't take care of it and dominate it, it will dominate you. There's been... Uh, stories written about people who got run off by horses, horses who, you know, were territorial, horses who literally took their riders for a ride that they didn't want to take. So, you know, you have to know good horsemanship before you can effectively be a horse rider, especially if you're going to be carrying lots of gear. Now, in contrast, uh, it's not that hard to learn how to drive a vehicle. As a matter of fact, the fringe pass being straight as an arrow, even someone who has only a fledgling uh, familiarity with a vehicle is able to drive down the fringe pass. Now, off the fringe pass is a different story. John, I agree with you that uh, horses can be really good off fringe because they can go places that a, uh, that a vehicle or at least a ground vehicle like a, a truck or a Humvee or something like that could never go. However... Horses, if you're not, if you're trying to feed them off the land, again, you know, uh, is that good food for them? Is you know, are they going to have an allergic reaction? The same reason that that most explorers carry their own food for a, at least an initial period of time until they've had a chance to try the food. Uh, this is the same reason you'd have to do that with a horse. So at least you wouldn't have to bring water for the horse once you got to an arable land because you could filter the horse or even, not the, sorry, filter the water for the horse or even run it through some kind of distillation process. Let's say you get to a world and you find out that horses, they don't have horses there. If you had a vehicle and you ran into the same thing, you could park your vehicle behind something and leave it there indefinitely. It's not going to get sick. It's not going to run out of food. It's not going to... You know, you don't have to worry about it. But with a horse, you have to take care of it, so you couldn't just leave it behind. Well, I don't think you necessarily have to take care of it. I mean, I'm speaking generally about its general health. You have to feed it right. However, a horse can protect itself in a way most vehicles can't. You don't come back and find a horse missing its hooves, like you might find a vehicle missing its tires. You know, a, a horse is, is aware, and is, as I said, that willfulness can work for you. Uh, a horse can protect you. 
Uh, some of the greatest horses were war horses who per- would fight alongside their riders in combat. A horse can take you can, uh, back to Earth Prime if you get hurt on the French path, a way a vehicle would never be able to do. Uh, a horse can uh, warn you of something strange that smells or hears. Your vehicle's not going to do that for you either. And a horse will listen to you no matter how inane your, your stories are. But, of course, your vehicle would do that also. But at least it wouldn't even look like it was listening, though. Uh, that, that's true. Um, yeah, the milkman used to, they would get done their milk runs in the morning, and they would go to sleep, and the horse would take them home, which, you know, a, a horse and a French bass could do for you as well. Right. Yeah, I was also thinking that, too, uh, well, it does mean you'd have to then have a horse trailer and all the appropriate gear in that case in your vehicle to bring the horses around. But I was just thinking that if you're going someplace, you might be able to get a riding animal of some sort where you're at, which means then all the problems of diet and can he drink the water go away, you know they can. Right. You just have to find the appropriate means of exchange to get that horse. And please yeah. don't steal it. Steal the horse because they shoot horse thieves in places. Or hang them, or draw a quarter to them, or feed them to lions, and all kinds of things. Even though you may ha- your character may have the riding skill, it's a different thing from riding a horse than riding a, a say, like a Strumulothius, which is a dinosaur. <laughs> we might have to introduce, if we're using D20, a specialized feat for exotic mount. You know, I, I don't know. It's it, That all depends on your system, how that's going to handle that. But I think you got it in a nutshell, John, is the fact that being a good rider is something that will probably be helpful to you on your explorations because a lot of your explorations are going to be at primitive worlds where horses or their equivalent, whether it be a, a camel or a elephant or a llama <laughs> or even an ostrich. Right, a uh, giant bird is what I was thinking. Right. Uh, but the point is they're all still going to require some kind of riding skill. And so getting that kind of skill is probably a, a very good thing for a fledgling fringe explorer to learn. And if you're uh, in it. So I would recommend becoming a good horseman or a good rider, you know, whatever term that is used in your game system. But I do like the idea of bringing horses along if you're going to worlds that are close analogs of Earth where you know that those animals are you know, going to be good for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is, is because they could actually introduce um, additional immunities to the uh, horses on, uh, and other type animals on the worlds in which you're going to. And that could be a benefit against plagues that you might have known have affected horses in the past. There, there might be some worlds you go to where the horses were all killed by a plague. And then you could introduce horses to a people who, who could use them. Uh, also, there are lots of worlds out there where horses never evolved. Uh, they might not even have a, a beast of burden outside of people that they've captured. So <laughs> introducing a beast of burden to that world, uh, no, it's not so good for the beast of burden, but it certainly would raise the standard of life for the humans or whatever passes for that on that world. So I guess we're all in agreement that uh, well, horses aren't the worst thing to be taking on the French paths. Probably not the best idea. Probably better to take vehicles and use horses on world where necessary. Yes, drive drive uh, modern vehicles on the French paths and have good horsemanship skills in case you need them on the worlds you go to. I I agree. 
if they have horses, they probably have some place where you can rent horses or buy a horse. Or if need be, steal a horse. Just don't steal someplace far away from where you are. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't get caught. Yeah. Why do electrical devices discharge as... We, we had long discussions about that during, during the design phase for Fringeworthy. And draining electricity... <sighs> Is this a, just a minor magical thing? It's not, is that the big magical thing? The big magical thing, I've always pointed out, is taking uranium-235 and turning it into lead-82. Normally in our world, when that happens, it's called a fission bomb, or a nuclear atomic bomb. And it makes a big boom. And here, we're doing it, and there's no big boom. That's the real, that's the real magic. Not electricity. It's turning radioactives into, iso- into stable isotopes. But that's begging the question, John. That's true. Yeah, I'll beg the question. <laughs> what is the question? Mm. The, the question is, why doesn't electricity work on the fringe pass when your own bioelectricity does? Well, that's simple enough to answer. Because... I, I thought that that was a, uh, a setup that they they did that on purpose. You're, Otto, you're entirely right. It's in the Bible, the Fringeworthy Bible. The reason that electricity and the nuclear suppression effect is, is there is actually because of the Tameller Meller War or the Commonwealth uh, Meller War. We don't really appreciate the, the destructiveness of the weapons that were available in the super science uh, commonwealth. You know, we say, oh, well, look, we can fire off guns and we can fire off explosives and we can pile big you know, piles of uh, nitroglycerin on a fringe pass. That's nothing compared to the kind of weapons that the Commonwealth had available, and they were fighting on the French paths using those devices. I mean, things that could channel the power of a sun through them. So this is something that basically said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not doing that anymore. You're back down to the equivalent of sticks and stones if you want to fight on the French paths. It's really a safety measure. It's to keep the war from being fought in any more than a vestigial manner on the actual fringe path, which is good for us because all we have is the equivalent of sticks and stones. I would imagine that the first time that it became completely apparent that that needed to be done was the first time one of the warring agents dropped an atomic bomb through one of the portals into a major metropolis that was on the other side of the, the ring. That happened after they dropped the big system, too. When the big system fell down, the Mellor were very quick to say, oh, we have a secondary delivery system that we are intimately familiar with, and all you people on the Commonwealth worlds probably don't even realize it's still there. We've got a back door sitting right in the middle of your force dome, and you don't even know it's there. Here, have a nuclear weapon. Boom. Oh, not nuclear weapon. Here's a black hole bomb. Here's an antimatter bomb. It's really a safety measure to keep people, keep the worlds alive that are still connected to the French pass. But yes, you still can generate biological energy. Yeah, I think we had this big argument, but electric eels still work. Yeah, originally in earlier editions, they couldn't shock you, but they could bite you. <laughs> but in the latest edition, Richard has said, no, they can still shock you. Bioelectricity has been upgraded, which means that there is a slight possibility of using bioelectrical devices. It is possible, therefore, for some of the cyberpunk-type devices might still be operational as long as right. they don't require any magnetics. I don't know if that's even possible. Or nuclear batteries. No, no, not nuclear. That's still out. Yeah, that's allowed. Yeah. So if, you, if, you're, if you're part of my nuclear batteries, 
you're going to fall down if you, on, your, on your cyber lights because there's so much metal when you walk through the portal. Or if you have like a bio-organ, a bioengineered organ that generate, that, that turns you into an electric eel, you could do it as well. They were talking about those called electrocyte cells. So if you had some kind of advanced cybernetic, but it's, I mean, not cybernetic as in mechanical cybernetic, but as in a biological. Engineered. Yeah, engineered, right. That would work as well, which would be actually optimal for uh, fringe path traveling. You can still have lasers on the fringe path. The way you do it, though, is you have to use chemical lasers. But then you've got to use chemical lasers in a mechanical fashion rather than electronic fashion as they are right now. It is possible to make an entirely mechanical chemical laser. The trouble is most of those things put out waste gas that can eat your skin off in the process of, of using them. So they're, like, fairly limited, but it is possible to have a laser in the fringe paths. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Jay was having problems with a picture we have of the Fringeworthy notes. This is something that actually isn't in the latest edition. I wrote this up, made this up on a drafting program. It's at the Yahoo News Group, and we'll try to put it onto our website here. It's a simple mapping out of a single note. And the easiest way to recall how the fringe paths, the, the platforms are put together in order, is to think of the word paths, P-A-T-H-S. P is for prime, A, alternate, T is system, H is star hub, and then S is star system platforms. Think of it as a tree or a small flower where you have a st- long stalk that then at the very end spreads out into eight more platforms. That is the single fringeworthy node, uh, how it's all set up. And they repeat time and time again, at least in our immediate vicinity. All the nodes are connected by two 50-foot portals that go left or right to the minus or plus version, which that's how we do it, just like on a normal Cartesian graph system where to the right is plus and to the left is minus on the alternate platforms. But that's how the nodes are connected, by uh, the same 47-mile-long roadways that connect each platform to each other. That's what that picture is all about, and it's the easy way to remember how the nodes are put together. Just use the word paths. But then his other question was, let's go to the Earth Prime platform. We have eight portals that go to planetary portals that go to go to the world. What is the criteria for placing those portals on that world? If you look at Earth, we have the we have the, the portal in, in Antarctica. We have the portal in Bahamas. We got the portal in Richardson Mountains in Canada. We have the portal in Easter Island, which is actually under control of the ASA. The Japanese uh, portal, which is actually the bottom of a two-mile deep trench. So it's not going there anytime soon. The Cherisky Mountains, if you Google map this area, there's some beautiful mountains there and also some treacherous swamps. So it's probably mosquito heaven at that place. Uh, there's one in, in North Sea. It's underwater. Between uh, Britain and Scandinavia. And then the Rabina portal in Libya, in the Rabina Sand Sea, which is damaged. But, of course, you won't find this out until you actually go through it if it's damaged. Right. But the question is, why there? 
The reason that they're there from a designer standpoint is these worlds were worlds that were not Commonwealth worlds. They were worlds that were trying to be brought into client status. So these worlds were considered to be places where they were too sensitive to, for the Commonwealth to reveal itself to them. So these portals were first of all placed in remote, inaccessible places so they wouldn't be found by anybody. And these were used by the Meller, who were good in those days, to go through and go to the various major civilizations that were in that world. There were ancient civilizations near east. Uh, there was the uh, Norse civilizations. There might have been a uh, civilization in Antarctica. We don't know that for sure since it's so under so much ice. Over by the uh, Bahama one, uh, it is Thor Heyerdahl, the famous archaeologist, who did the trip of the Contiki, his idea that a large civilization left from Easter Island and traveled across the uh, Pacific Ocean and populated what's known as Indonesia now. So there was a large ancient population at that time, and when this portal was established, when this node was established, it's quite possible that that was someplace close to where they thought might be a good, you know, setting off point to go and reach that civilization and help guide it. From a game standpoint, you could say, well, we're putting them wherever we want to. There may have been an ancient civilization there when the portal was established, which may have moved, may have died. Uh, lots of things could have happened since then, and the portal is still there. It may not be in a place that you expect it to be. It may actually be in a very inconvenient place because of the ways people move around and cultures grow and civilizations rise and fall. So why is it in that location? Well, that's the GM's job. You figure out why it's supposed to be there, why it was originally supposed to be there, and then say, what's there now? Therein may be the adventure that you're talking about. Yeah, like the Bahamas portal... Where the, where the ring station is right now used to be dry land during the last glaciation. So it's possible that it was put there 15,000, 16,000 years ago, uh, maybe to help observe the, the comings and goings of the, the, the Paleo-Indians in North America. You never know. I still can't figure out though, why they put one at the bottom of a two-mile trench, ocean trench, next to J Japan. <laughs> well, it's, it's possible that maybe maybe it got moved there somehow. Maybe um, maybe there was a some kind of landslide into the ocean, or or uh, you know maybe, maybe they moved it there on purpose to get it away from you know maybe it wasn't in an unpopulated area. It became populated, and they just moved it down there to get it out of the way. Who knows? Well, since it is a full ring station, you know that if it's ever turned on, it's going to produce a warp on the surface at the nearest dry land equivalent. So maybe it was put down there so, A, again, it would never be found. Right. And so when the portal was turned on, bam, you have a, a warp in a location where there's probably going to be a civilization. It right. might be intentional again. So, yeah, like so I was saying, so maybe it was put there before when there was no civilization there, or the civilization was too primitive to recognize it in, in any way. And then they decided, oh, we've got to move this thing because um, the people people are coming over or there are people here now that are you know, starting to get involved with this thing, so we'll move it down there and we'll use a warp off of it. 
Right. Warps can be moved intentionally. That's one of the functions of the crystals, and I'm sure the Tamellers could move that warp anywhere they wanted to. It might have been just that they said, oh, well, let's just put it here because it's out of the way and nobody will notice it, and, you know, it's done. It's, you know. And then they said, now let's take that warp and move it over here where we want it to be, and then later on we can move it back to some other location without having to deal with the uh, establishing of a new ring station every time you want to go to a new part of the world. And actually, if you look at the placement of the Cherisky uh, base and the Richardson Mountains base, if it was put during the last glaciation, that was pretty much the pathway through the, the land bridge. If there was a land bridge would be near those regions. So perhaps that's why they were put there, to, to keep an eye on the Paleo-Indians traveling from Siberia to North America. Put someone into the old stream and have them go on through, and then, of course, when the ice melts, you got a place in North America to go to get back out again. But does not explain Antarctica? Why did it have one down in Antarctica, Bruce, and why is it much more developed than the other ones are? What we decided when we were doing our development was we said that this particular base was actually used either during the war as a, uh, a, a kind of a pocket stop uh, on a prime, or it was used by another civilization that was wandering the paths afterwards that actually built up a city around the, the base, uh, around the, the dome, and later on, with a change in temperature or increased glaciation, uh, it all got ground away and disappeared. But ultimately, as the uh, adventure designer, you have to make these decisions. These worlds, these portals may not be where you think they should be. And I want to recommend to people that if you're using the TriTac maps that are available, the fringe maps, and especially the, the 13 nodes that are all together in the back of the book, if you don't like where someplace is on a world, move it. This was just an idea that we had where these were adventure seeds or little places. You know, we were just trying to give a, a variety. If you want to put it someplace else, if you want to change it from a ring station to a, to a warp or from a warp to a ring station, if that works better for your campaign, do it. It's all still fringeworthy. You know, you, you don't have to match our maps exactly. Harvey's question was, can you move the ring stations? Are they fixed in place or can we take appropriate crystal and... Uh, we actually answered that question also during our chatting, but it never actually really made it into the Fringeworthy Bible. And that was is if you were to dig far enough underneath a ring station, there would be just nothing but dirt or stone or whatever, and the ring would be above it. So you could actually build up underneath it and raise it up. And if you actually slowly encroached on the underside of the, the warp, you could actually raise, make it extend itself or rise itself up. We talked about putting a ring station on top of a great big wooden scaffolding where obviously it wouldn't last long enough for it to be a 1,000 years old, so somebody moved it up there somehow. So It's all possible, uh, but generally speaking, the, the whole point of the ring stations is for them not to move. If you really want to move a, a place, put rocks or trees and pile them on top of the ring station itself and cause the ring to deactivate and create a warp nearby in an open location and then move the warp. That's the much easier way of doing it. If you were to activate the portal to the trench by Japan and it didn't make a warp and you just simply would walk through, it's two miles down. You'd be turned into spam in a second. So, so what you're saying is, is that... A ring station could conceivably be lifted up, could conceivably be moved, but, and the only reason I'm trying to make this clear is because I could see players wanting to do this. So you couldn't put this thing in the back of a giant, like a big 
giant truck and drive off with it. I would say you probably would need one of those haulers you use for Saturn V's. Is it because it's heavy? It's not heavy, but it is massive. It's a reality anchor. Okay. You're trying to move something and it doesn't want to move. Okay, so it's kind of like when you have a gyroscope and the gyroscope's spinning around in your hand and you want to turn it over. You get that resistance to it wanting to move out of its space. It would resist you moving it. It would have like a, a, an inertial, more of an inertial force need to be put on it to get it to move. Okay. Let's say you were in the Richardson Mountains and you've got that ring station that's in a cavern and you dug a, another cavern underneath it and blew a hole through the roof underneath where the fringe portal was. It would slowly lower itself down to the ground and then ground itself into the stone underneath. Okay. Uh, it requires more inertial force to get it to go. No, it doesn't require any inertial force whatsoever. It is established there by the fringe system. I'm just saying that, that for you to move it, you would have to exert more inertial force on it to get it to move than you would for something of that weight. Oh, I, I, yeah, I guess so. You'd have to convince it that you really wanted it to move. I guess. Right, okay. That's, that's what I was saying. Yeah. So would a crystal help you do that? Um, that's not one of the crystal functions, but it certainly could be. Uh, uh, moving a warp is part of the crystal functions. I suppose there could be a higher grade uh, crystal function that could actually move a ring station, but that's something for the GM to add. It's, it's not currently part of the core game. Right. So I guess it, the only reason I even bring that up is because I could see a group of players wanting to steal one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like steal, like, oh, we found the ring. We're going to steal it from such and such. And the point of the matter is that... It's not an easy thing to do, and it would require a great deal of resources to make it happen. Even a warp can move a warp, but it specifically will only move so far, and it moves at a walking speed. So right. you could imagine trying to steal a warp, a, a right. ring station. Here it is, floating along or dragging it along slowly over the landscape, uh, right. resisting any rise or lowering of the not uh, perfectly flat land. Until you get, like, some kind of air travel, like helicopters or something, I can't even imagine it happening. And then you'd have to totally pacify the area before you could even do it. I can't imagine someone managing to steal something like a ring station. Now, a warp, on the other hand, since it's entirely immaterial, it's just a matter of making the, the fringe system realize that you want it to move and it allowing you to move it at a certain rate. Okay. How alternate is alternate? as alternate as you want it to be. However, speaking generally, all the alternates are supposed to be of the prime, and therefore they all share the same physical laws that the prime and therefore the node has. Unless you want to say that this is just a really strange alternate. For some reason, the portal system captured an alternate that was really bizarre and not really part of the, the universe that belonged to the node, And there are things called other spaces which totally fall outside the realm of any alternates uh, or or prime's reality. Theoretically, the alternates should be somehow an alternate of the prime. They can still be as alternate as you want them to be. I mean, they could be a world in which the moon and the earth crush together. Well, that's going to be a different kind of place. Earth could be missing at that location, or it could be a gas giant, and the sun could be smaller 
there's so many possibilities that could be going on here. Usually we're talking about alternates in the sense of sociology, geography, history, things like that. So alternates of, of primes are, are very easy to lay out. In, and you can pretty much take an alternate from one node to another and just say, yeah, it's, oh, this is an alternate of this one. As long as the physical laws match up, there's really no problem there. He also poses the question, suppose we have a world where March 23rd, 1973, Carl Sagan had raisin bran for breakfast instead of Wheaties. And that's the only difference. That's possible. That's entirely possible. However, I would ask yeah. you, how interesting is that Why? going to be for your players? Yeah, yeah I was going to say yeah. boring. Yeah. Except that, of course, you have the, you have the fun of finding right. yourself. Yeah, and, and, you know, I've, I've done that. We've all done that, you know, where you go through, you find yourself, you tell your, yourself stuff. And self, yourself, hey, self, is always very reasonable about the things you tell him or her, <laughs> okay? And, and I always thought that more likely if someone who looked just like me showed up and started telling me stuff, I would probably think that I'd gone psychotic, you know, my dream come true of there being actual interdimensional travel. And, and then, of course, I find out, oh, and, yeah, I can do it, but you can't because I'm fringeworthy and you're not. Just because you look like me and you're exactly the same as me doesn't mean you're fringeworthy. Too bad, so sad. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, now I know you're screwing with me. I think basically the idea is that, what you do is you come up with a world that you want the players to play in, and you just make that the alternate. It doesn't have to follow any kind of real formula. It doesn't have to be any more or less alternate by any standard. Basically, it's a tool for you to just run whatever kind of adventure you want to run for the players at that time. Right. Remember, it's not your world that's alternate. It's your universe that's alternate. Right. Okay, so there could be some star system uh, 100 billion light years away where something is slightly different on that world than on the world in your own star system that you'll never see and you'll never interact with, but that's what makes these two worlds different, and otherwise they're identical. I mean, right down to the molecules. How interesting is that? I think it isn't interesting at all other than to say, hey, just to raise the point saying, I'm fringeworthy and my identical twin is not fringeworthy. What does that tell us about fringeworthiness? You really want to meet yourself that went down a different path. Of course, then you get the problem of, okay, he went down this path and he did better than I did. <laughs> or he did worse, both of which are have their nasty connotations. He made a completely different decision because of some apparently random decision-making process. Why did you choose to go to this building and, and take a, a, an interview when you could have gone to that building and take an interview? It's like, ah, I just felt like it. Or it got held up in the mail. Or I mean, I've made all kinds of decisions in my life that I look back and I say, you know, I don't know why I made that decision. It's, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, and I might have done it differently if I had a chance to do it. So... I think you'd drive yourself crazy trying to second-guess yourself like that. Well, on to Jay's next question. Why Earth Prime and not, say, the uh, Victorian 2 Earth? Why is Earth Prime a prime? Why did Melon make that choice? They did because this world was more stable? Would that be the right answer? In an interdimensional sense, yes. You've got 80 connections if you include the prime the system platform and all the nearby stars that each have eight portals going to their star systems, you've got in a relatively small amount of space, you've got 
80 interdimensional connections from the fringe past to a, a universe. And, of course, it has to be an alternate of Earth. This particular universe was a lower energy configuration, easier for the connection to be maintained and stabilized, less work for the fringe path system to do. So the automated node building equipment said, oh, that's the prime. We'll make that the prime. And then the higher energy, less stable connections, those are going to be alternates. That's the best rationale I've ever come up for it. So the Victorian to Earth is less stable for a reason than our Earth. The Victorian Earth that's the prime is very much like the Victorian Earth that's an alternate of Earth prime. There's no rationale why one would be a better Victorian Earth or more alternate. I don't think there's any kind of rationale like that. It's Again, it's you as the designer deciding what you want your worlds to be. And we thought that the Victorian Earth was so interesting that it should be its own prime, and so we made it a prime. So his next question is, so I had 47 miles. It's multidimensional. It could have been at least six feet. What were those fuzzy so-and-sos thinking? What were they thinking? Bruce, why is it 47 miles to the next platform? Well, again, uh, we're talking about an automated system. Uh, if you actually get back T Prime to Mellorum Prime, the very first platform that was ever set up, up upon by the original to Mellorum, when they first made their first platform, it was huge. It had hundreds of portals on it. It had all kinds of stuff. There are all kinds of weirdo experimental type platforms around uh, Tamellan Prime, but by the time we get out to where we are, they've got automated machinery doing this stuff. So for whatever reason, the 47 miles makes the connections between universes more stable, and that's why it's 47 miles. Yep. And how close can you put portals together? So if I happened to a prime world where I was lucky, there was two ring stations within 10 miles of each other. And I bury them to make warps here. Can I take two warps and push them together? You can get them close to each other, but remember, there's a four-foot safety zone between the portals. So I would expect that you probably couldn't push them any closer together than eight feet. Okay, so the answer is eight feet. It's as close as you can get them together. So you can't pass one through the other. They won't allow that to happen. Jay asked the question, are the different alternate worlds and so forth, just placed randomly? To the eye of the fringe where they are. Uh, there's no rationale why you can't have a node that's got magic in it right next to a node that has super science that's right next to a node that has nothing but pterodactyls and, and mastodons, possibly on the same world at the same time, which would, again, be normally impossible. The GM decides what he wants to do uh, <laughs> and, and, and what would be interesting for him. In the back of the book, we have 13 nodes laid out. If you look at those nodes, you'll see all kinds of different things there. Anything is possible. It's really a, a playground for the GM to have fun with. There are a few rules that we try to follow. Like I said, that each node should have physical laws that match up, unless you just want to be different about having a weird space in there. But other than that, no, it's pretty much the way you want it to be to make one world interestingly next to another world. So going into the realms of the gifted language. Ah, so the gifted language. Yes. So his question is, so I step through the portal onto a world where Elvish is being spoken. I get Elvish in the head. All right, I got Elvish. Now I'm taking notes. What am I writing in? Am I writing in Elvish or am I writing in English? 
I would say at this point, if in the early years, you may actually forget to turn off Elvish so you can write in English. You may actually write in Elvish, and you can still read it just fine. You know, you look at it, and it's in Elvish, and you read it, and it's, it reads just fine. You won't notice this until you actually get out of that world on, back onto the platform, and then you go, what is this? I can't read this. <laughs> because it's in Elvish. So at that point, would you say Elvish has left the building? Yeah, hey, I was just left the building. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I never saw that coming. Oh, it was terrible. But <laughs> but in reality, when you <laughs> but on a more serious note, when you say um when you say turn it off, you just mean mentally, like you would if you knew two different languages and you say, Okay, I need to think in this other language at this point. The, the gifted language that you get when you go through the portal basically makes you bilingual if you only knew one language or trilingual if you already were bilingual. It's there in addition to your primary language, and basically it changes places. Your primary language becomes the secondary language. It's no longer your mother tongue, but you still know it. You can still speak it if you want to. It just takes a little bit of a mental effort now because the other language, the gifted language, has become the mother tongue to you. And if you think about it, you know, if you listen carefully, if you become aware of the language, you know, it's supposed to be naturalistic. It's supposed to not get in your way. So it's very easy to forget that you're speaking in another language. But you know you are if you look at it. If you just look at the, you say, wait, that's not English. And I'm not hearing English. But I understand it as perfectly as if someone was speaking whatever my mother tongue is to me. First went through and came out again. Uh, at least one of the, the first team, uh, Wee Lai, didn't speak any English at all, but she was speaking English when she came back out because of all the various reporters and so forth that were in the Tessimi base. But she couldn't, at first, couldn't tell she was speaking English when she was speaking English. It took some time to realize she was speaking English and she could recognize she was speaking English at that time. So, so you can write your notes in English even though you're speaking Elvish. There's no problem doing the translation. Just like you might have an effort going and figuring out a good analog between words. I have never seen an English-Spanish thesaurus. I've seen an English-Spanish dictionary, and I've seen thesauruses in each language. So you might have a little trouble picking the perfect English word for the word that you know so clearly in Elvish. But it can be done. And that's where skills like writing or skills like uh, language linguistics might be helpful to the character in yeah. writing down information that would be understandable later. Your character has a smart class. Being a, a linguist is a class feature. Okay, I'm being different languages, and uh, I have an extra ability to actually do the other language, do the transition between languages. You were using the D20 modern system, which uh, we currently are. I would say that person naturalistically would be able to switch between the languages without any trouble. So it would be a good reason to have someone with that basic class as part of your group. So to be clear, to answer his question, yes, that would that could happen, especially in the early days, you know, before they realize or they realize how important it is. You could be writing your notes in a language that you can't read when you get back, but then later on, as, as time goes on, it would become part of the training regime of IDET, and it would be naturally assumed that your characters would be taking notes in a language they'll be able to read later. This would probably be some sort of a hazing thing that trainers would put the novice 
a fringeworthy through to say, you know, okay, you know, anybody who can turn in a legible list of notes to me by the end of the day will get a day off tomorrow. And they all turn them in, and he says, oh, okay, well, three or four of you can go take the day off, but the rest of you guys, what is this? And he holds up their homework, which is in Cyrillic and Elvish and Draconic and all these other bizarro languages that they very carefully made sure that they went through a world where they would pick up that language and do their notes. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Is there a Tremelon device left lying around that could make people fringeworthy? Maybe there is. Maybe there is. <laughs> There's a number of ways of making people fringeworthy that we haven't released yet. I know of at least two ways of making people fringeworthy, and I'm not going to tell you now. <laughs> what? Stopping their heart and then taking them through while they're dead and then starting to heart on the other side? They'd have to be brain dead. They'd have to be like cryogenically frozen and then restorable on the fringe pads without any. Te- I guess you could still use the Tamellern dock box to do that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's possible. I've never tried it that way. I always thought that would be kind of foolish. But, yeah, if you're desperate enough, maybe you could do that. The official method is handling a crystal key once a year gives you a cumulative 1% chance of becoming fringeworthy. So after 100 years, you become fringeworthy. But it'd take less than that. It becomes a situation where your chances of failure are diminished faster because you have to fail the role every single year. Statistically, that, that becomes harder to do as time goes on. I suspect that some of uh, Waylay's uh, bodyguards, who are probably the same people being used several times, <laughs> probably have handled the crystal at least once or twice. Of one, one or two of them have probably turned fringeworthy during their time with her. In the Victorian world, the son of Lord Greystone is fringeworthy. Lord Greystone was fringeworthy, and Lord Greystone's chief man-at-arms was fringeworthy. Now, in a world that small, in the middle of the Congo territories, finding three people who are fringeworthy together all at the same time beggars the imagination in the area of, of the hundred, one in a 100,000 chance of, of being fringeworthy. So something else is going on. And when John and I talked about this, we came up with the rationale that there was a witch doctor in the area who had a sacred stone, which was actually a fringeworthy crystal. And he, on various occasions, allowed the elder Lord Greystone to handle it, as well as his manservant. Of course, when he made his yearly visits to the Banner Greystone to give his yearly blessing to the young Greystone heir, of course, he dropped a few baubles into the baby's crib for the baby to play with, one of which didn't do anything until finally it did glow, and he knew that he had the gift. No, it starts glowing, it just was like a pretty rock, or even not even a pretty rock. Some of them are pretty dull-looking when they're not glowing. So it's quite possible for someone to be handling a crystal and never think twice about it until it actually does glow. The crystal does not glow for the shaman. Exactly. He's had it for like 60-so years, and it's never once glowed for him. Every curve has its far end, right? 
is the rational that at least justified having three fringeworthy people in the same area when really that never should have happened. And this is important in the Victorian world because in their world, the portal is secret. So they can't just go running around the world saying, oh, you're fringeworthy. Oh, you're fringeworthy. Here, could you send a couple thousand people over here to see and walk past this rock to see if it glows? They have to use the person who's fringeworthy holds the crystal and seeks out other fringeworthy to find them. Now, if I remember correctly, the whole concept of not everybody being fringe-worthy, that was a uh, function of programming in the uh, in the fringe paths. Is that correct? Yes. It, originally, everybody was fringe-worthy, right. but the Commonwealth asked the Tamellern to turn on what's called the fringe-worthy filter in order to keep huge armies of people from rushing onto their fringe paths and, and attacking other worlds. Because one world could literally prey on another world and have a perfect means of escape because they run to the portal. And so by using this filter, suddenly only the, the rarest of people could go through. Unfortunately, yeah. one of the rarest people was the Meller. They're all fringeworthy. It would not be inconceivable to have a device that would change the programming for you as you went through. So it's not like a crazy thing to have. I could see that being one of their devices so that they could bring certain people along that they needed to bring along during, say, during the war. They might say, well, we need to go get a couple people, so we're going to have to come up with this device so that we can bring anyone that we need to bring at any time. I would never include it, actually, in my Fringeworthy campaign at any time because the fact that there's only one out of 100,000 people is one of the things that makes Fringeworthy a special game, and that's I would never want to violate that. Uh, wow. Even when they find out ways of making everybody fringe-worthy, it's still going to be pretty darn inconvenient. If a non-fringe-worthy person holds hands with a fringe-worthy person while the fringe-worthy person makes a transition to the gate, does the non-fringe-worthy person make the trip as well? Sorry. Hopefully you're not traveling too quickly when that happens, because if you're sitting next to somebody and you're going 60 miles an hour and the car hits the portal and you're not the fringeworthy person, you're going to be flying through the air minus a car at 60 miles an hour until you hit the ground. However, if you're holding a leash and there's a dog out and you're fringeworthy, the dog gets to go through with you. No, your dog, you could have a big old string of dogs. You could have a string of burrows one after another, and they'll all go through. As long as they're attached to each other, I wrote. So you could have that collar on a person. Collar goes through just fine. A person doesn't. <laughs> okay, but the dog will. Dog will. As far as the game is concerned, anybody who is sentient, and, and I had to use the word really sentient because, of course, people will say, well, what about uh, apes and what about dolphins? Well, in the games I run, apes and dolphins can't go through. They're too sentient. And so the system recognizes them as sentient, and therefore it says, no, sorry, you don't, you're not fringeworthy, you're not going through. That's just a function of where the, the game master wants to draw the line, is what you're saying. There's no hard line on that. It's just, what do you consider sentient? There are at least three fully 100% fringeworthy races. The Slargs, the Kegak, and the Blizzniz. All three of those are 100% fringeworthy. There are probably other races out there that are fully fringeworthy as well. Where the entire population of, of that sentient species is fringeworthy. The way we describe fringeworthiness is it is an energy field, an energy pattern around the person. The crystal can recognize it, the system recognizes it, and therefore that's why you can go through and other people can. Can you lose your fringeworthiness? I suppose that's possible.
if you went through some kind of an event that radically changed whatever energy aspect of it that is readings to the point where it, you no longer qualified. It's also possible that you could, I don't know, go to a Dr. Frankenstein magical kind of shock effect and you could suddenly find yourself fringeworthy. You know, that's something that for the, again, the GM needs to decide that. But overall, Fringeworthiness is something that doesn't normally change throughout one's lifetime, except you get it conferred by having a long enough contact with a crystal. If you ever go to a world where, where magic uh, is available, especially magic that, c- that can do wishes, pray no one wishes, I wish you never leave this place. <laughs> You're saying that you could wish Fringeworthy off of somebody, so you, could you wish Fringeworthy onto somebody? Only on that world, but yeah. Well, okay. So, I would say that it would depend on the nature of wishing. If wishing right. doesn't require understanding, then yes, you could do it. It's one thing to say, hey, I wish I had another arm. I wish that person was in love with me. Because you understand what love is. But do you understand what fringeworthiness is? You know, right. if, you, if you're simply saying, I wish I had the ability to travel through that portal and to that place called fringe space and back anytime I wanted to, then I'd say, yeah, sure. But the problem is, is that that's magic, and as soon as you move off of that set of nodes where magic holds sway, all of a sudden you wouldn't be able to walk through the portal anymore. Would you be stuck on a platform? Yes. Oh, that's not good. You wouldn't be stuck in the sense that you couldn't go back, but you wouldn't be able to go any further forward. Right, right. So you would have to go back to your world, and that would be pretty much it. But it doesn't take any understanding to wish away fringeworthiness, which is the problem. Well, again, you still have to know what fringeworthiness is. When you says, I wish you would never leave this place, they would put some sort of barrier on it so you would never be able to enter that portal. You could be in a world where there's really a god, and uh, the god has ultimate-type powers, and he could confer whatever he wanted to and take away whatever he wanted to. So, yeah, this is a general rule that can be changed by the dramatic needs of the adventure. That's perfectly fine. I would just say don't screw your players over. Don't yeah. take the character they've invested in for 10, 15, 20 adventures and maroon them on a world just because you thought it would be great to be able to do it. That wouldn't be right. This is a game. Therefore, the rules are only as strong as you adhere to them. And there's lots of exceptions because it is a game. <laughs> we go to, say, Victorian Earth. Earth Prime, and I stepped through and I read Viscount Terrace's uh, library. A bunch of books that were never written by people, but I figure they're good books. So I'm going to take them back to Earth and sell them, sell the rights to them. Is that ethical? Well, it's certainly not ethical because you just admitted that you stole them. It's an alternate world. Do our laws apply to that? If I take works of art, movies, books, whatever, from one world and bring it to our world and then sell them as the, the sole proprietor, is that ethical? Well, it's the same situation in our world in the area of copyright. You can copyright something saying it belongs to you and you only, and you can go over to mainland China where they don't acknowledge copyrights. And as far as they're concerned, you did nothing wrong. You can go and sell it and make and reproduce as much as you want. However, if you contact anybody back on the world country in which you came from, they're going to say, no, man, you stole it. You're doing something that's wrong because you traveled to that other world, that that other country, so you'd have the freedom to do what you know you wouldn't be allowed to do here. It may be legally okay, but uh, ethically, no, not at all. I just saw a great movie. Let's make that a fringeworthy world. Is that a good idea? 
making a world that has the technology or the culture or whatever that is might be a good idea. Okay, but the actual story per se, no, it's probably not a good idea because we're talking about two different media, games, adventures versus narrative movies. The writer has complete control over the characters in his stories. They do what they're supposed to do. They say what they're supposed to say. Acts happen that seem to be random or lucky because the writer says that he needs them to happen that way. When you're playing a game, you cannot count on any of that. You can't count on the players reacting to the NPCs the same way as somebody in a book did. You suddenly start making things happen in a certain order or sequence. The players will rebel against it and say you're railroading them. So, generally speaking, the ideas that are in books and stories are great to be used as a seed for writing a fringeworthy adventure. But the actual story itself, narrative or, or plot, is usually pretty poor as a direct translation. Yeah. Having a game in a world that people have seen, like, for example, Star Trek, they've seen it, it's easy for them to conceptualize it, and it's easy to have a good time in it, because you don't have to describe a lot. We were doing a Robotech-type thing. I did, like, a portion of the Macross series, but all the players were the destroyed pilots. While they were part of what was going on, they weren't part of anything that you really saw so much. I mean, you kind of saw them in the background, but that's what they were. That was very interesting for everybody because they got to see the story unfold from a different perspective. So something like that could be done. One last question. Can pearls be set to be one way? Of course they can. It happens to uh, Sayuri. Her pearl got made one way when she stepped through it. So the answer is yes. They can be made one way. Now, whether or not you can do that, that's a different question altogether. I don't think that's one of the powers that's listed for the portal crystals. No, I don't think. No, it isn't. There are broken portals that definitely will make them one way. There are pocket stops that actually have one-way portals. You walk through one, you got to go across the entire pocket stop to get to the other portal to go through that one, which is also a one-way portal. What we said in the new edition was that a lot of these so-called problem portals where something unusual happens when you go through are actually a function that's in the portal itself. It's a feature but it's being triggered inappropriately, and therefore it becomes a problem. So there might be a world in which it might be impossible for a human being to survive. So what happens is you go through the portal, and it triggers a mind transfer of your mind into the mind of an inhabitant, which makes them, you know, you basically take over their mind. They don't get hurt. They're just kind of, they go to sleep, and you run their body for a while, and their body might be made out of crystal, and, or it might be a giant soap bubble, or whatever it is on that universe that requires life, but you as a human being wouldn't be able to survive well there. And then when you leave, you come back out of the portal, and you're just the way you were normally. That would be a feature. But when you go to a portal where you go through and you find yourself in a sheep herder's body, and there's no good reason for it other than the fact that you're, you've just been transferred into somebody else's thing, we call that a problem portal. Like a time-lapse portal is interesting because it lets you, you walk through and, say, two hours, three hours, or two days later, you're yanked right back to the platform. Now, normally that would be considered a problem portal, but that could be quite handy. 
Okay, I want you to go explore for two days. Just go out and explore as far as you can. Don't worry about mapping. You won't get lost. Who cares? Just go, just go out and go as far as you can for two days, and the portal will bring you back automatically. That's handy. Or you're making, or you know you're going into a hostile negotiation situation where you may be taken hostage. You don't care. You're coming back in two days. It even could have been used as part of the Commonwealth Mellor War, where you go through as a fighting team, and no matter how the battle went, if things went bad and stopped, all you had to do is you know, to hunker down, and bam, you'd be back to the portal to regroup. So all these problem portals are problem portals. We're not questioning that. It is possible that at one time these were features, and if these were activated or the portal was configured to do this intentionally, there are a lot of opportunities for these to be good things. One thought was there are special crystals that are attuned to one person only. So Schmert has a special key. He can lock a place, and no one else can unlock it unless they use his key, or unless he uses that key to unlock it. You can have an imprinting key, maybe, that keeps it for a certain period of time. It imprints on him, and now it's, it's his key. As long as it's a high enough key, no one can override it. Hey, that's an option. Then that means if something happens to it, like, I don't know, accidentally it's dropped off a platform, that world is closed forever now. Unless you use the higher-level key, automatically overwrites the lower-level key. Right. So I'm just saying that that could be dangerous. That could That could potentially shut an entire world off from right. access. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe you right. go and say, hey, this place is terrible. I don't want anybody ever coming here. Right. Maybe Cthulhu's in that world. Right. <laughs> Let's shut that key off, and I'll, so I'll carry it, and nobody else can get into there, and I say so. <laughs> this has been our episode on questions from you, our listeners. So we want to thank Jay Haley for asking all these questions. We really hope that we answered your questions, Jay, and didn't just make it confusing. If we did answer your questions incorrectly, if we do slip off into uh, some of the nether regions of Fringeworthy, I hope at least it's a place that you find interesting. Uh, Otto, do you have any closing comments? Yeah, yeah. I would like to encourage everyone else to ask questions. I mean, it's, it's helpful because, you know, we try to think of interesting things to keep the show going and, and keep the show interesting, but it's only interesting if you're interested in it. Uh, your questions help a lot. It behooves you to write questions. Uh, we'll gladly answer every one that we can. There's a place to add comments to each and every one of these podcasts. If you have a question, post it right there, and we'll take a look at it, and we'll try to answer it in, in our next podcast. So until next time, this is Bruce Shepard from Atlanta saying, remember, there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John from Seattle, and remember, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and layers coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, don't shoot the portals. They shoot back.
No commercial distribution or derivative works are allowed. You must fully attribute this work to TriTag Games. This podcast is solely the property of TriTag Games Incorporated.